Okay, so that first Bible reading will be from Exodus chapter 19, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 6. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses came up to God, and the Lord called him from the called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, covenant then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words you are to speak to, it, to the Israelites. Okay, then we'll flip over to the second Bible reading, uh, which is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. And we'll be reading verses 4 to 10, and that's page 1,221 in the Blue Bibles. As for you, come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's good to be with you and to look at this passage together today. Let me just get sorted here. Um, In the outline, it's on page five. Uh, That might be helpful for you to keep uh, track of where we're heading today, if that works for you. All right, so what I'm going to do today is start off with, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to get... a very helpful helper to come up and help me uh, kick things off. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give, you, we give you great thanks that we can come together today, wherever we're at with you. Whether we're wrestling with uh, your real, whether Jesus died, truly did die for us, or whether we're one who uh, uh, has loved you for many days, we ask now that by your Spirit, we'll have clarity on what Jesus has done for us and what that means for us as being your people. Amen. All right, now I'm going to ask you a question. I need Jen to come up to help me um, with this. So can you come up, Jen, please? She's not very happy about me asking her to come up, but that's what happens when you marry pastors. <laughs> so if you could just stand here, Jen, I've got a question for you. No, well, not really. Can you hold a Bible? Can you hold a golf club? Can you hold my passport? Can you hold my wedding ring? And I think that's everything. My question for you is, what does Jen... My wedding ring, my passport, a Bible, and my golf club have in common. <laughs> Sorry? They're all precious to you. 
Yeah, they're all precious to me, spot on. All of these things are precious to me. Um, now, let, let's just be clear. Different scales of precious. <laughs> I really love that. <laughs> you might need to clarify those. Um, thank you, Jen. All of these things are really, on some level, precious to me. The wedding ring, because it just symbolises that uh, great day where Jen and I got married, it goes without saying, um, as far as humanly speaking goes, she's the most precious uh, thing, person, anything in my life. Uh, I love being Australian. It's a blessing. (laughs) That's as romantic as it gets, people. (laughs) Um, I, I I love being Australian. So my passport, I think it's a blessing to be in this country in many ways. Um, you, you possibly have heard, if you've come on the odd occasion, if I get leisure time, I end up playing golf. You might have heard that. It's just the thing I love doing is a sport and leisure time. Uh, obviously, God's word is the most precious and hopefully that is why we're all here um, and what we're thinking about. And this Bible in particular is a little bit more precious because this was the one I was given as, uh, at my ordination. That's why it's really worn and used, because I use it all the time. So these things are all precious. Uh, Jenny is the most precious thing in my life. But today we see to God what is precious to him. And the scale of that preciousness, it's more like Jen and me, rather than me and that inanimate metal object on the floor there. God has something that is deeply precious to him. And to give away the answer, you may have already picked it up in the readings, it's his people. Deeply precious. So wherever you're at with God today, whether you you don't know what you think of him or whether you you, you, um, love him dearly, what I want you to be able to see is how does God make you his people and why he sees you as so precious? So that you can continue on in it, maybe with new conviction, or maybe even today, for some of you, decide, you know what, I've been toying around with it for a while, but today's the day where I realise I want, I want to follow this God who sees me so preciously. So that's the, the task that we have today. Sorry for my bit kind of nasally sound. It's sounding strange to me, so if, uh, you can hang in there, that's great. Um, in the outline you see there, the first thing is that the idea of living stones, which highlights where we're heading with this. So what I want to do is to see how Jesus is the living stone, and we'll run through that, and then we'll see how his people are living stones. So pick it up with me. It'd be helpful to have your Bible in front of you, but if not, you can listen on, or um, you can easily just get up and grab the Bible from the back there as well. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, Peter says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but not chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see there that Jesus, it's referring to initially, is chosen by God. God the Father has chosen Jesus. Now, that's a little bit odd. I'm on the chosen. Jesus, God, made flesh. He's always existed. What's he, what, how, how can he be chosen? He is. Because he's chosen in the sense that 
God. His eternal Father has chosen him to be the foundation, to be the actual salvation of the world. That is in the sense in which God has chosen Jesus and humanity has rejected that about Jesus. But why describe it as a living stone? Well, it's not a hard analogy, particularly in, in imagery. Think of a stone as a foundation in which everything depends. A little bit later in the Old Testament references, it's a stone that's called a cornerstone. It's the stone in building terms which lines everything up and holds everything together. It's the stone which you lay first so everything will work out nicely. If you get that stone wrong, the building will suffer. It's a little bit like um, uh, the pagola back at our house at home. Um, if you've been at our house... There's only half a pergola at the moment because a couple of Mondays ago when those winds got crazy, they blew off and went, and went wild and, and, and it literally blew right off. So we put in the insurance claim and the insurers came and assessed it. And as they do, that's three from three from insurers when we've had claims for damage, they knocked it back. And why did they knock it back? Because when it was originally built, they said it wasn't built to standard. The first foundations that were put in place to make sure that it wouldn't blow off weren't put in place. Now, um, that's why we got rejected. The cornerstone, the stone, if that is not right, salvation won't work. Everything depends upon it. The foundations of any building depends upon the foundations being built correctly. And Jesus is described as that stone. Everything depends upon it. But it's a strange metaphor, isn't it? Because he's a living stone. I I, I suspect none of us have seen a living stone. (laughs) I suspect that because they don't exist. So why call it a living stone? It's because it's not not, um, just to think of foundations and strong, but to throw another analogy on top of it is to say that it's living. It's not dead. It's not inanimate. It's alive. Jesus is a foundation that is living. And it's interesting, isn't it? He was rejected by humans, but precious to God. So the first thing we see about preciousness is God's preciousness is found in himself where he sees his son and he's deeply precious to him. But humans reject him. But he's living because the rejection that caused his death is how the mighty God shows that he is living by conquering death and rising back to life. He is the living stone in which all other life is dependent upon. So how is he a living stone? Well, there's three kind of Old Testament uh, references and allusions that follow. Um, You can see there I've got how are we like living stones. And we're going to get, come back to that and see how that's traced out through this passage. But as we see the Old Testament references coming up, um, now this is the Old Testament's the part of the Bible before Jesus was alive, um, but all point to Jesus. And so Peter's used um, allusions and references from the Old Testament to say how God's people were to think are found in Jesus. And so in Isaiah 28.10, he picks up and he says in verse 6 of 1 Peter, See, I lay a stone in Zion, it's God's city, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, why pick that passage other than it's got cornerstone in it? Oh, look, there's the link. 
It's because in Isaiah 28, the context is the prophet Isaiah was told by God to be scathing with God's people, to be super harsh with them, to tell them they're in trouble because they presume that they're okay with God. They were in God's land that he had given them and God's building, they have God's temple and everything's fine and so there's a real problem. They're going to be, <coughs> excuse me, they're facing judgment by God. But there's hope. There's a stone in Zion, a precious cornerstone and if you trust in him, you'll be right. You see, while there's a problem... God wanted the people back then to know that there is hope. There is a foundation that won't break. And Peter picks up on that and says, this is Jesus. He is the foundation to all of life. Everything depends upon him. And he is profoundly precious. That's why in verse 6, highlights his precious. It says in verse 4 that we've already seen. And then in verse 7, we see his precious again. An allusion to Psalm 118, we see, Now to you who believe the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That is to say, he is precious. But just because you reject him, it doesn't mean he's still not going to be the foundation of all of life. He still is going to be, no matter how people deal with him. Um, you may or may not know, that here at Trinity Grove, we're part of a network of churches um, all, all around Adelaide and um, the church that we all kind of started and came from in Trinity City, and there's a picture of Trinity City up on the screen over there on North Terrace. There it is. And now that's a, um, a pretty significant building in many ways. Um, and I found out, I heard um, Paul Harrington say that um, Trinity actually has a foundation stone. They actually have a foundation stone. You know what the problem with it is? They don't know where it is. They can't find it. It's laid there buried somewhere. Maybe when it gets knocked down, they'll find it. But it does have a foundation stone, but they just don't know where it is. Now, what seemed um, unimportant, those that are rejected, becomes the most important. Picture in the city, the foundation stone, well, they don't even know where it is and they don't really care because it's not in the building that matters. Instead, it's, it's, in, uh, it's in the people who are turning towards the living stone. We'll get back to um, buildings a little bit later as well. You can flick off that, thanks. Because Jesus is life. You reject him, well, there is a problem. That's the harshness um, of it. And that's what verse 8, which picks up um, from Isaiah again as well. A stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. The living stone is precious to God, yes. But what was rejected by others will still crush them because it's precious to God. Now, there's nothing more unpopular than to say that. To say any idea of crushing or people being rejected, there's nothing more offensive but what Peter, what God's actually wanting to show um, his people through Peter is that everything hinges on turning to Jesus. And so you need to know the flip side to it. You disobey the message, what's left? 
So it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And so, if that's the case, God sees Jesus that way, so precious to him. He is so precious. And if he's so precious, everyone should be focused on him. How are we to think? Well, how are we? Are we living stones? How are we living stones? We'll go back to verse, uh, verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God's people are described as Jesus is described here. That's extraordinary. We've seen how precious Jesus is to God. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. That is to say, God, he has your back so much, which is how I highlighted what Isaiah 28 was about. The cornerstone always has your back. At the end of it, it says, you will never be put to shame because he sees you in this sense, like he sees his eternal son, a living stone. You see him as precious because you are precious. This speaks a lot, which we're not going to get into today, but doesn't it speak a lot into how we value ourselves? if this is how God sees us? And every single one of us throughout our lives have times when we have an over-heightened sense of our value and a really lowered sense of our value for whatever reasons, health, situation, how other people treat us, to the success we have and the... Uh, the comfortableness we are with who we are, all of those things. And then we get this clarity on how we're to see ourselves with how God sees us. We see that the disobeying of the message is the reality if you're not a living stone, that there are great consequences. But overarching it all is that you are deeply precious to God. We are, what does it say, a spiritual house, a spiritual home. We are a temple. That's interesting, isn't it? What's a temple? I wonder if anyone can give me a one-word definition of what a temple is in the, in the Bible. Is anyone willing to have a crack? Because it's kind of a word we know, but what does it mean? Yeah, kind of a church, kind of the pre-church if you like. A temple is where God's people come to meet him. Did I say word? I meant sentence, Sorry. I was wondering why no one was having a crack. (laughs) Does anyone want to have a crack now? (laughs) Uh, Keep going. All right, so (laughs) we got it now though, right? A temple is where people go to meet God. And so if you're going to meet God and you're not right with him as in the Old Testament way, if you're not aware, you needed someone to get you in the right place. So that's where all the sacrifices took place. That's where the priests who give you access to God did their thing in the temple because that is where God dwells and that's where you go to meet him. Can you see why if you just take that and flip that straight to a church and see it that way, church buildings could become really important? But what does it say about us in verse 5? You also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. Not... You, like living stones, are going to go into a spiritual house. You are the spiritual house. That's a total revolution in how we're to think about how you meet with God. God is saying, 
You are so precious. You're like Jesus in being a living stone. Now you don't go to a temple to meet with me. I am in you, in Jesus. And so the temple are the people in the church building, not the building. See how revolutionary, how big God has a view of what he wants us to be like. And if you never knew that, that is what God wants you to see, how precious you are to him if you trust in his son. We are a stone that is building and growing. Once again, a bizarre kind of idea that we're a spiritual house that's growing, a living stone. Stones don't grow, but we do. Trinity City doesn't just have a foundation stone. It's a really significant building in Adelaide because it's the oldest church in Adelaide from 1838. The National Trust has their stamp on it. Even more significantly, when Monopoly Adelaide came out for the first time, it was actually the church they chose because it was the first uh, church. So uh, Trinity City's on the Monopoly board. It's, It's significant because people have memories there. It's significant because people would uh, come to faith there. But it's not really that significant. If it burnt down tomorrow, the church hasn't burnt down. Because the people in the church are the church. Now I say that because it's very different for us here, isn't it? We're in a gym. (laughs) There's no essence of churchness about this place, right? And we're moving to kind of a chapel. Um, it, it's used for that function. It has its multi-purpose building that isn't very particularly churchy of the old style. And then we're moving back into a gym. Why can we possibly do that? Because it's just the church moving into a different venue as God's people move with it. And it doesn't matter. Because we are the living stone. We are that precious to God. Why? Well, can you see there, I said, you are very special people. Why do we do it? Because we declare his praises. You have a career path if you love Jesus. You may have a job, but your career path is into all of life, is to declare God's praises because he's given you life and he gives, gives anyone in Jesus life. Let me read verse 9 and 10 to you, and then we're going to unpack these details of how we're living stones even further. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, Peter's picked up how when God establishes with his people how they live back in the Exodus when the people have left Egypt and we had it read to us. The same language, God sees his people as chosen, as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, all for the point of praising his name. What do all these layers of ideas about who we are mean? It's what you are. And while they may sound like christian words, what's behind them is of deep value to all of us, or there should be. See, you're a chosen people, which means that God wants to have a relationship with you and set you apart for his purpose. 
We're going to unpack the whole idea of chosen election, all that kind of stuff in future weeks. But this idea that God hasn't just gone, oh, I've got to put up with them. Do you sometimes feel like God sees you and thinks, I'm just so done with them. I have such little value in myself. God must have such little value in myself. Do you ever have that inkling sometimes? He sees you, he's chosen you, and you're special to him. It's the key to when we, when we struggle with identity issues. It's the key when we struggle with mental health issues. It's the key when we struggle with morality issues that reject God that we come back to no matter what. I am special to God and he's eternal. Even if my life is just so dark at the moment. We are set apart for him for a purpose to praise him. But it's more than that. It says we're a royal priesthood. Now, if I was to tell you now you're a priest, you know, that's a bit boring. I've never wanted to be a priest in my life. What I want to do is show you how it's not. All right? So if you can come with me, I want to show you why actually being a priest is unbelievable. And it's not only that you're a priest, you're a royal priest. That is, you've been given, you're actually part of the royal family. You do royal things now. God gives us his royalty because we're his priests. Now in the Bible, there are two ways priests are used in the New Testament. Firstly, in the New Testament, there is the one priest, Jesus. He's the perfect high priest who does everything perfectly by stepping um, in between us and God, giving us access to God by dying in our place, being our sacrifice. He gives us access to God. That's what a priest does. The priest is the one who gives access to God. Jesus does that perfectly. He is the high priest, as Hebrew says. If you want to know what a priest means, it means you get give access to God and you continue to um, live in that access and reflect that access to others. The other way the Bible uses priests is to say, everyone who loves Jesus is a priest. So don't ever call me Father, <laughs> Father Michael or Priest Michael, because I am not, unless you call yourself the same thing. The tragedy of the church over the centuries is they've taken away priests from all Christians and put it into ministry leadership. We have been given access to God. You don't need me or any other human to give you access to God because the ultimate human has stepped into your place. He's seen your rejection of him and he says, I'm going to step in your place, face your um, punishment, and now you have full access to God. You know how when we have communion and we say, we remind ourselves of 1 John, um, and, we, and we remind ourselves that we've been forgiven. If anyone has sinned, um, uh, we have one who gives us access, Jesus Christ. He gives us access to the Father. 1 John 1 8. We say it every time of communion. Go back and have a look at it again. I'm not going to say it to you now. Go back and look at it and reflect on how significant it is. We have access to God, even though we have totally rejected him because the ultimate priest has given us that access. And if you didn't know that before, it is unbelievable for you because what it's saying is you don't have to earn favour with God. You don't have to do all these good things to be right with God. You may have had a good notion of God, but now what you're seeing is 
God has done it all for me. The living, ultimate living stone has saved me completely. And you, all you do is respond by saying, thank you. I needed that because I had rejected you. And then you become, you are, if you had that conviction, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That is who you are. Because he is the priest. But then all of us, as his people, are a royal priesthood because we have been given this access. We don't come each week and do all these sacrifices together so that we can try and get back into God's favour and get access to him again, do we? I hope you don't think that's what we do. Or that by you coming every now and then, for some of us it's every week, for some of us it's a couple times a month, for some of us it's just on special occasions, and by doing that, that's kind of the sacrifice that makes God say that you're kind of okay maybe. That's not how we operate. Instead, we totally revolutionise the way we're thinking and go, I've been chosen by God because of the ultimate priest, I have full access to God, that's why I'm a priest. And we do it together. We are a holy nation. We are different. We are set apart. There are other nations and people groups and cultures around us, but we are holy like God because there is something that should be distinct about us, shouldn't there? No one else calls Jesus their Lord, so that's pretty distinct. No one else would want to live declaring his praises. That distinguishes us. And so we want to live in the way that he wants us to. What God wants, we want. A holy nation. Not a holy individual, a holy nation. That's why last week, the bit before, was about being holy. Part of being a holy nation is to you as individuals determine how you live godly lives. What things you do to be holy as God is holy was last week. The Romans 12, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. But Peter didn't want uh, all the churches in Asia Minor to think, okay, I've just got to make sure I do that. And if I do that, it's okay. We get this passage to remind us, ah, oh, I'm holy with everyone else and I do it with everyone else. I'm a people. And that really matters to us because more and more our Western world is just becoming more and more individualized and we don't even realize it. We're God's special possession. Now, uh, can anyone guess what I wanted to be when I, was a teen, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, even before I was a teenager? There was two things I would have really loved to have been. Can anyone guess what they were? A golden crow. <laughs> yeah, you, you both got it in mind. I'm so predictable. I wanted to have the most important job in Australia. I wanted to be the captain of the Australian Test cricket team and I wanted to be a golf professional and get that invitation to play at the Masters. Right? Thanks, Julie. No. <laughs> my argument, Julie, just to clarify, right? My argument is my godlessness would have meant if I had that opportunity, I probably would have done that and doing this is far more important. So that's why I'm not that. <laughs> um, but, but, every now and then, imagine, and whatever you want it to be, you can imagine whatever it is for you. But if I imagine, you know what, I got to that point, I got good enough, I got picked for the Australian team and I was good enough to do that. And then, you know, Steve Wall was the captain because he was my hero and then he rings me up and says, I'm stepping down and it's time for you to be the captain. I 
And the day comes and it just so happens that they're CG, where I watched all, all, all my childhood. And I go the first day to be captain of the first day of the test match and I go fishing. Something that I actually don't really like. But I think, oh, no, it's better that I do fishing today. What a goose I would be. Imagine if you had something that you aim for your whole life, your whole purpose and your whole intention, and when it comes time to actually live it out, you don't turn up. Wouldn't that be just ridiculous? Absolutely, utterly ridiculous. But if we truly see not only that we are saved by God, but that we're a people of God, what we see is that we turn up. I'm not talking about the Sunday attendance per se. Obviously, the implications are clear. I'm talking about overall turning up as being part of a people, day to day, in and out. Turning up to hear his word, turning up to praise his name, not just to each other, but to the world who, um, for a lot, doesn't want to hear, but it's our job to praise his name. Because this all leads us to, you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness, because of verse 10. If you're not a Christian or you're wondering what it means, look at verse 10 now specifically. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God wants you to know that in Jesus, he is willing to mercifully give you life with him forever. It's grace. We have two weeks on this, on God's loving grace. For you to know, you don't earn it. You don't have it when you reject him, but he's saying to you today, he will give you mercy. Trust in him. And it is yours. You can make that decision today. You can continue in it. Trust in him. You don't have lots to figure out if you're not sure where you are, but if you have that simple understanding that Jesus has done that for me and I love him, you can know that nothing can take away the fact that you are now part of his people for eternity. I'd love to help you with that. Friends here would love to help you work that through more. So as we um, just finish with some reflections on these extraordinary things, how do we live between these two worlds that Peter's been picking up on, being a people of God and living in the world that is not the people of God? Well, first, you can see on the outline there's four things. A couple I'll elaborate on a bit and a couple I'll mention. First of all, Christians reject the worldview of individualism. And if you look out for it, you'll see how much it's out there and then if you're really wise, you'll see how much it affects you and your approach to life. There is no Christianity by yourself. Can you be a Christian and not go to church? It's a dumb question. You've been made a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're to belong to God's people and to be engaged with God's people. A people who do things together is what you do. And first and foremost, to declare and praise his name. But have you noticed that the worldview of, I just need some me time. <laughs> One of my kids said that the other day. Didn't go down too well. Um, uh, what, I got, what I got out of it. 
what, what am I going to get out of this? That actually happens in our minds when we think about church, which church we go to, whether I go to a community group, which community I go to, whether I'm going to do the letterbox dropping or not. Whether, what am I going to get out of it? I just need, I need my workplace to be fulfilling. Do you truly need your workplace to be fulfilling? Is that the, it's very nice, it's very good, it's really hard when it's not, but it's not the, it's not the intent of life. What you need is to declare the praises of God and be part of his people and then sometimes in God's blessings you do have fulfilment in work. I just need my needs met. Well, as one who has rebelled against God, as the world has, needs being met has led us into so many destructive areas of life. We need to look at our needs, consider them, but think of the whole, what do other people need as well? We've got to, more and more, I think that's confronting us as Christians individualism because we are a people not just in notion but in reality and so secondly we embrace being a people i got this uh phrase from another pastor that i heard him say priests contribute they don't consume are you a contributor or are you a consumer we do things together. That's why I love, I love Grove, right? I love our church. I love the fact that we started three years ago with not many people. And the reason it's happened is because overall we've had this approach. The letterbox drops going great. People are totally committed to it. I said last week after the service, everyone just went there to fill out the forms and there's only three left and I'm confident we'll get it done because people want to be involved. We have a focus on mission and when we lose it a bit, we want to get back to it. Now, embracing being a people and doing things together is not, though, well, if we just have more social times and more lunches and all those kind of things and hang out more together. That should happen. It be naturally happen, and we need to make sure that happens. But that's not declaring the praises of his name. That's first and foremost, and all that other stuff just gets wrapped up in part of it. But I'd also say, I've been tried, I tried to be reflective a little bit this week. If you were to ask me, what's our biggest problem as being a people at Grove? And I say this, this is not a guilt trip. This is just how I see the reality at the moment. I think our biggest problem is at the moment, we're part-time priests when it comes to reading God's word together. I think that's actually a fair assessment. When we look at our community groups, which I think are foundational to us coming together in small groups and reading the Bible together, as a whole, as a, or not any particular age group, this is the assessment of all, we have a very low commitment to regularly being involved in doing it. And it's to our detriment as a whole. Because what does God want us to do as a holy nation? Talk his word together. When you're tired and when you've got other things on, Satan's going, don't go this week, you're still committed. That's what he's telling you. <laughs> Whereas God wants us to fully embrace, oh, you know what, I'm not getting that much out of it. But you going may be getting a lot of people out of it at that time. Or the, all the effort that the leaders put in. I just wonder where that's probably, if you were to ask me our biggest problem, I don't think enough of us have paid enough attention. Those of us that go, that aren't making it a priority in our lives, and this isn't a guilt trip in saying you're not there every week and say so you're a bad person. This is us overall thinking, I really think we need to ramp up our commitment to gathering together in smaller groups and reading his word together. They're great. Now, I'll give you an example. The other week in my group, uh, one week we came, and dead set... Uh, all of us were yawning the whole time. Like, seriously, it was a hard group to lead that week. I don't know if anyone in the group who was there knows which week I'm talking about. But everyone was yawning the whole time. It was like, why are we here? Everyone's so tired. It was so hard. 
Um, and then I started doing it, I think, oh, I can't do this. We kept doing it. It wasn't the most enjoyable evening. It didn't get heaps out of it. But at the end of that night, someone shared a couple of things they need to pray for. And there were really important things going on. And we prayed and we talked. We got some really good application out of God's word. It was really valuable. <laughs> we were really tired because we just all had long weeks. I think that's just something for us to reflect on. We also thirdly need to have a right sense of worship. You see, if we are the temple and the temple moves, we don't come to church on Sunday just to worship then. This is clearly God's people gathering together corporately to worship and praise his name together. Not just the music, which clearly has a big part to play, and needs to lift our eyes and hearts and we should sing loudly and boldly to our Lord because we want to praise his name, but we don't call that worship time. Because by doing that, we're taking away from the Romans to all idea that our whole life is a living sacrifice and is full of worship. That everything we do is full of worship. We don't reduce that time either, which has been a problem for those that have wanted to steer away from that. But we don't call worship a time of worship or have worship leaders at Grove. Intentionally, we don't use that language. Because all of life is to declare his praises. We gather together to have a special moment in time where we lift up our hearts and minds and praise him as part of that. But true worship as a temple is all of your life. And so you need to have that right sense of worship. And then lastly, any of this can only happen if you have confidence in the living stone. If you have confidence in Jesus, the living stone is not lost. The living stone is not broken. The living stone is certainly not dead. He is reigning on high, waiting to bring home all his other living stones. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us a renewed sense of being your people. We thank you for the foundation we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.